guess we're uh, ready to go, so um, thanks for coming again. <coughs> the, uh, the title of this uh, session really uh, comes from uh, a comment uh, by uh, Derrida in uh, the book Given Time, where he talks about the madness of economic reason. And he's actually commenting on a, a term of that kind from uh, Marcel Morse's uh, book on the gift. And, and the question is uh, why does what happens in a gift economy, which is people often you know, spend a lot of time saving wealth and then they destroy it all at the, uh, some great, great ceremony, and uh, this looks to us like uh, something that's completely mad, but of course the point is that it had its own distinctive rationality in the context in which uh, it occurred. Um, I actually uh, thought of this because when reading the Grundrisse, uh, uh, there is a point where Marx also talks about uh, the madness of economic reason. And uh, I often think uh, it, and we could sort of take uh, the question that Derrida sets up, which is why does something which looks totally mad to us have a rationality, and turn it around the other way and say, why does something that appears to us supremely rational, which is uh, contemporary economic reasoning, actually turn out to be totally mad? Uh, and uh, this, in effect, is what uh, Marx has to say, so I'm going to start with some comments drawn from uh, the Grundry, so just to give you the context of this. Uh, the context is this, that the Marx points out that uh, when commodities that are bearers of value uh, are finally consumed, they actually drop out of the circulation process, they disappear from the circulation uh, that we've been describing. And as they disappear, they thereby, thereby, and this is Marx speaking, cease to be a moment of the economic process. They disappear from the circulation of capital. But this disappearance is contingent on the prior conversion uh, of value from the commodity into the money form. And the point about the money form is that it has the capacity to remain in circulation in perpetuity. So money does not drop out of circulation, and so Marx is very emphatic about this point. Uh, then Marx goes on to comment, in the case of money, it becomes madness. Madness, however, as a moment of economics and as a determinant of the practical life of peoples. In other words, what Marx is saying is that daily life is held hostage to the madness of money and circulation. So the question is, wherein does this madness lie, given what we've been investigating in all of the former lectures? And I think it's interesting that Marx attributes uh, madness to the money form, the representative of value, rather than to value itself. But the underlying problem he describes actually lies with value, because then he goes on to say, we have to understand how value preserves itself through increase and it preserves itself precisely only by constantly driving beyond its quantitative barriers. 
Thus, growing wealthy is an end in itself. It therefore appears at limit, as limitless waste, which logically attempts to raise consumption to an imaginary boundlessness. This, he goes on to say, is an endless process. Furthermore, this is a comment on The Economist, it is damn difficult for Monsieur The Economists to make the theoretical transition from the self-preservation of value in capital to its multiplication. Our understanding of the world, he suggests, is held hostage to the insanity of an economic reason that not only justifies but promotes endless accumulation while pretending to a virtuous infinity of harmonious growth. The economists have, in short, never confronted the consequences of the bad infinity of endless compound growth. They loudly proclaim the virtues of a bourgeoisie who have in practice, and I quote Marx, subjugated historical progress to the service of wealth. This precludes any real understanding of where crises or disruptions come from. Crises, in their view, are due to acts of God or nature or to human errors and miscalculations, particularly those attributable to state interventions. Those, into, those uh, activities that derail the supposedly immaculate machine of free market capitalism. When confronted with a crisis, the economists are reduced to claiming that if production were carried on according to the textbooks, crises would never occur. Now, this uh, idea is important, but the, magnify, the Magnus, which can be attributed to the value form, uh, uh, is very much magnified by one of the processes we have been talking about before, which is the growing antagonisms between value and its various monetary representations. As money is cut free from any material base, such as that of money commodities, so its idealist constructions <coughs> in the form of dollars, euros, yen, etc., become vulnerable to the vagaries of human judgments, open to excesses and manipulations. And I quote Marx, from its servile role as a mere medium of circulation, money suddenly changes into the lord and god of the world of commodities that can be tangibly brought into the possession of a particular individual. Money, he suggests, is a claim upon social on the social labor of others in exactly the same way that debt is a claim over their future labor. Money gives its possessor a power over society over the whole world of gratifications, labors, etc. The gap, however, between the proliferation of such claims and the value base upon which such claims might be based has widened enormously since Marx's day. Somebody pointed out to me the other day that if everyone in the world went to the banks to demand cash equal to their deposits, then it would take several months, if not years, to print the notes required. But this is only the tip of an iceberg of phenomena within the financial world that Marx barely hinted at, let alone studied and theorized in Volume 3. The flows of credit monies, which have increased enormously since the 1970s, are in the first instance directed towards funding activities within the field of distribution itself. That is, they don't flow around that whole system that uh, I showed. Uh, they get locked in that corner of distribution, and it is flows within distribution that really matter.
interbank lending uh, is at an all-time high, as is the reliance of financial institutions uh, on the central banks. Banks have always lent to governments against the security of the state's power to tax, and the escalating national debts of the leading states have not the faintest hope of ever being retired. Much of the effective demand derived from state expenditures is fictitious capital generated as anti-value within the credit system. These claims to future value production endlessly expand. Consumer credit is made available to everyone, including workers and students, and typically escalates as it circulates. Credit flows to land and property owners fuel speculation. Merchants and industrialists borrow even in the face of the potent power of anti-value that may destroy them at some future date. Merchants, land and property owners, states and everyone else who saves, including more privileged sectors of the working classes, deposit surplus funds in financial institutions in the expectations, sometimes deceived, of receiving a rate of return. All this churning and flows of value and of money occurs within and among the various forms of distribution. It never escapes the field of distribution. Now Marx recognized the importance of what he called fictitious capital formation within this financial area of distribution. And he also recognized the importance of asset speculation. But he really couldn't penetrate the madness of their economic reason because here you're dealing with a phenomenon that we did also talk about, which is those aspects of society which have prices without values. This could not be got at, let alone the madness of their practical consequences. But all of these elements which are going on inside of that whole area of distribution enter in as moments of economics and as determinants of the practical life of peoples. The interest rate goes up dramatically. Uh, people find they can't pay their housing and you get foreclosures and the like. Now to study capitalist economic history, I would suggest, is to study all this madness and its consequences in action. And what I want to do in the rest of this talk is to actually talk about that, some of that history and talk about some of that recent history with the idea of trying to put together some of the ideas which come out through the theoretical discussion of Marx's contributions, uh, to put that all together in relationship to trying to understand uh, the madness of what is going on us, around us right now. Now, the single most, the single maddest piece of information that I've looked at over the last year or so is the following. That uh, between 1900 and 1999, the United States consumed 4,500 million tons of cement. Between 2011 and 2013, China consumed 6,500 million tons of cement. In two years the Chinese consumed nearly 45% more cement than the United States consumed in the whole of the preceding century. Now those of us who live in the United States have seen plenty of cement poured. So you have this astonishing statistic and data from China in terms of how much cement they have poured. And the increase in scale uh, of cement use in China exceeds anything, of course, by a factor of many, many <coughs> times 
uh, anything before experienced in human history. And it leads to the question, you know, this sounds to me a pretty mad event or a mad uh, process spreading cement around at that level. And it poses the question what the environmental, political and social consequences might be. Now cement is used in construction and what this suggests then is that there has been a huge expansion of the production of the built environment, uh, of fixed capital in the built environment uh, over those, that period of time. And it's not only cement that is used. In fact, China has consumed half of the, not only of the half of the world's cement supplies, it's consumed half of the world's steel supplies as well. Uh, 60% of the world's copper, 60% uh, of the world's lithium, and you just go down through most of the raw materials which are produced in the world, and about 60% of it has been consumed by China since 2008. And one of the points I would want to make immediately is that actually during this period China's economy grew and it grew very dramatically at a time when the rest of the world was actually uh, suffering from recession, depression. And this growth, however, was focused in certain areas. About 25% of China's GDP has been taken up with construction of housing alone. Another 25% has been taken up by the production of infrastructures, uh, highways, high-speed rail, and the like. And this has all gone extremely fast. In 2007, China had zero miles of high-speed train network. Uh, by 2015, it had 12,000 miles. That is, in about seven years it had constructed about 12,000 miles of high-speed rail network. You can now whiz around from Nanjing to Beijing and uh, Shanghai and down to Guangzhou in high-speed train networks. And in the next few years they'll have another 5,000 uh, high-speed. Now this is, at the same time, China has built whole new cities some of which are not occupied. So-called ghost cities in China are rather famous. You see the photographs of these incredible places, nobody living there. Uh, of course, other physical infrastructures include a highway system. Uh, the automobile has become <coughs> dominant. Every city you visit in China now has uh, plenty of traffic jams where you know, 20 or 30 years ago it was mainly bicycles, it's now totally automobile. With one of the results of that is the air quality has declined dramatically. So you've now got some air emergency situations in many parts of China. And uh, that uh, air situation is such that actually life expectancy in the last 10, 15 years has declined uh, dramatically, almost all due to environmental consequences uh, of high levels of pollution. And some of you may remember when Beijing staged the Olympics uh, a few years back, they had to ban traffic from the center of the city for about three weeks uh, in order that the athletes would have a proper air quality to be able to run their races. 
So this is a huge urbanization project which has gone on in China and the question is why has it gone on and why has all this cement been poured in this huge uh, project. It has a lot to do with the following sequence of events. That when the economy crashed in 2007-2008 in the United States, when the uh, credit system froze, uh, when uh, the foreclosure wave became dramatic, when all those things happened, uh, the United States suddenly found itself uh, losing consumer power very quickly. Uh, people who've just lost their homes don't go out to the shopping malls and buy goods. Uh, people who've just been unemployed don't go out and uh, buy goods. And so the consumer market crashed. The primary provider of goods to this consumer market was China. And so the export industries from China uh, lost something like 30% uh, of their export trade uh, in 2008. That then led to massive layoffs. There were closures of companies and the result of this was a, wave, a mass wave of unemployment. Now, nobody quite knows how to measure uh, all of that unemployment. There are various estimates uh, of how much unemployment there was. Uh, I've seen 20 million, 30 million. Whatever it was, it was very, very large, unprecedented in many ways. And part of the problem was, of course, that when people could leave for the Chinese New Year, then the question, often people don't come back, so there were all sorts of issues about whether there were people who were not going to come back anyway, or whether they just didn't come back because there had been plant closures and so on, all the sorts of questions of that sort. But whatever way you look at it, there was an unemployment problem. Masses of people unemployed. There was a report at the end of 2009, which was on data up to the end of 2009, that tried to make an assessment of the net job losses that had occurred uh, through the crisis of 2007-2008. And the biggest net job losses were in the United States, and then many European countries had big job losses. China, with a huge labor market, uh, ended up, uh, and the calculations there, to suggest that there was only 3 million uh, net job losses. Now that's a lot, but compared with the 20 million or 30 million of people who are unemployed, it means that somehow or other China managed to compensate for the loss of 17 or somewhere between 17 and 25 million jobs, managed to compensate uh, for that in a period of nine months, which is also, I think, uh, an unprecedented economic performance. And clearly, this unprecedented economic performance was associated with this urbanization project which was associated with tremendous demand for raw materials to build the cities and to build the highways and build the high-speed networks and, and the like. So any country that was providing a substantial amount of raw materials to China came out of the crash of 2007-2008 fairly fast. So Australia, for example, which is full of minerals and iron ore and all the rest of it and has very closely related to the China trade, 
barely suffered anything during 2007-2008. Chile, similarly with all its copper. Zambia with all its copper. Uh, Brazil with its iron ore and, and uh, soybeans and the like. So all of those countries which are tightly connected, supplying raw materials to this part of the world, uh, actually survived pretty well through the serious recession of 2007-2008. In fact, I think the case can be made, and I would certainly support that case, that actually China saved global capitalism from a big, serious, major depression during this period by simply building like crazy and spreading all that cement around. Now, I don't imagine that the Chinese uh, government, that the Communist Party, sat around and actually considered how to save global capitalism. What they were interested in doing was saving themselves. And they knew perfectly well, as I think almost any ruler has done at various times, that if you don't have relatively full employment and you have you know, 30 million or 20 million unemployed people milling around, that's trouble. That's serious social and political trouble. And that therefore the Chinese looked around and said, what can we do that we can somehow rather compensate uh, for all these job losses in the export industries. They did not have enough of an internal market to make any very fast substitutions into the internal consumer market. So they engaged in that other practice which we looked at, uh, which is productive consumption. That is investing in the fixed capital uh, and for, uh, for production. And that fixed capital was all of those elements and also investing in the consumption fund, uh, long-term investments in the built environment. So that this was the easiest thing for them to do. For instance, in the high-speed rail network, they had laid plans to set up a high-speed rail network, very well-organized plans, so they knew what they were going to do, they knew the routes they wanted to follow, uh, they, they just didn't think the economic situation was right. So they had uh, what in this country was called shovel-ready projects to go all over the place. And so they just went for the high-speed rail network and said, OK, we'll build that. That's one of the things we're going to do. They also sent basically to all of their local governments and all of their urban or municipal governments and regional governments and even uh, township governments and said, support anything you can in terms of building things. If you've got any building projects in mind, do it. And if you need money to do it, then the banks have been told to give you the money. And essentially they told the banks to lend. Now if you're, the Chinese banking system is very much connected to central government directions and therefore they lent. The contrast with this country was when uh, we had the troubled asset relief program and they gave a lot of money to the banks. The assumption was that the banks would lend. Uh, and there's this wonderful moment for any of you who've seen that movie uh, um, about, about the banking, uh, banking crisis at the end where uh, Paulson and uh, uh, Bernanke are looking and uh, Bernanke kind of says, well, we've given them the money, I hope they lend. And of course they didn't lend. Uh, what they did was they took the money and they retired a lot of their debt. Uh, they took the money and they actually even bought back their own stock. They didn't lend out to, to activity. In other words, that money which was lent to the banks, which was in China, went to productive consumption. In the United States, it just went to the banks and stayed in the banks, 
which is again one of the things we want to get to, is that when money gets circling inside of the distributional arrangements, then it gets locked out from growing the whole kind of thing so that value production is, 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 is uh, taken away uh, as, a, as, as a result. So this was uh, the situation. The banks lent, the municipalities and the governments and, and private institutions and corporations all jumped in and did what they had to do, and they built like crazy. And, and like I say, what they did was essentially keep global capitalism alive through an expansion process of this sort. Now, debt financed, this had to be. And one of the consequences of this was that China became one of the most indebted countries of all time. Uh, in a few years, uh, it was increasing the rate of uh, um, indebtedness by about 27% a year. And uh, in 2000, by 2015, it had a debt to GDP ratio of something like 200, you know, 250%. So it went from you know, not modestly indebted to totally heavily, heavily indebted. Uh, the advantage, however, that the Chinese had was that they were indebted in their own currency. They were not indebted in dollars. So it wasn't as if the IMF could come in and start telling them what to do, or the Troika could do something to it like they did to Greece. Uh, the Chinese simply had to reorganize uh, their own printing of money and their own monetary system in order to cover the debts if uh, they needed to. And they had, of course, a very large foreign exchange surplus that they could use to recapitalize their banks if they needed to do so. This had happened before in the late 1990s where the banks had overlent and got some very bad debts on their books and uh, the China go Chinese government simply took some of the foreign exchange surplus and recapitalized the banks and cleared out uh, all, of the bad, all of the bad debt. They, can, they are in a position uh, to do this again, so the debt is uh, not the same as it is in other uh, countries because it's all in the local uh, local currency. Uh, and this comes back also to the fact that uh, China is a fairly self-contained value regime uh, of the sort we were talking about uh, last week and that therefore uh, in that sense it is protected to some degree from the sorts of international interventions uh, which can, may otherwise uh, bring, bring trouble. So this was the China story then, and, and I think that what we have to look at is, uh, you know, what, what this eventually is likely to lead to and how it will lead there. Because this story which I tell about China is special in one sense, which is that its scale and its speed is unprecedented. But it is not as if we have not witnessed episodes of this kind before in the history of capitalism. In fact, it's a very common uh, way in which capital gets out of particular difficulties. Uh, one example I looked at in a great deal of detail during my own research was uh, Second Empire Paris. There was a crisis in 1848 in Paris, a revolution. Uh, first um, stage of the revolution, working class took power. Second stage of the revolution, the bourgeoisie came and shot the workers and they took power. 
but they couldn't figure it all out and how to work it all. So along came Louis Bonaparte and said, I'm the great Bonaparte, um, elect me president and I'll, everything will be all right. You've heard this kind of rhetoric, right? <laughs> everything will be all right. Don't worry. I mean, I'll make everything good. And, uh, you know, France will be great again. <laughs> and so, so he, uh, and, and, and he became president and then he did a coup d'etat and then he uh, declared himself emperor. And he did uh, what uh, many people do, which is, of course, the first thing was to form his secret police and set up uh, a whole series of, of police spies and, and secret agents and things like this to make sure that anybody who criticized uh, him or criticized the regime was almost immediately put in jail. So uh, that was uh, the, first, the first step. The second step was he realized very well that if he didn't put everybody back to work, uh, if he didn't uh, solve the economic problem, he wouldn't last very long. And he was a great fan of the utopian thinking of Saint-Simon. And Saint-Simon had kind of suggested that one of the biggest problems the capital had was it was its inability to associate lots of little bits of pieces of capital and put it together and, 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 and then uh, accomplish great public works. And this was Saint-Simon's dream, that associated capitals would create a new world which would be beneficial to everyone through uh, investment in, in public works. And so Louis Bonaparte thought about that and said, OK, that's what we're going to do. He brought Haussmann to Paris and he said basically to Haussmann, rebuild Paris. Here's your great public works. Lots of other public works were set up. Build the railways across the country. Uh, build the railways, by the way, we'll have foreign investments going down into, the, into Lebanon and, into, into, and build the railways in Russia and all this kind of stuff. So he was very activist on this kind of front. And so Haussmann came to Paris and said, well, we can't do this without developing new financial institutions. So there were some Saint-Simonian types who kind of said, well, this is how we uh, set up new institutions. We create new credit banks, which, uh, where people can deposit little bits of money and they can be mass money and then they can go out and build you know, mass public works uh, you know, required to build the boulevards and, and, and all the rest of it. So basically they rebuilt Paris, debt financed by these new institutions. The city government was debt financed and, and uh, full employment. Uh, and there were other things that were, went on which were about the creation of a new lifestyle in Paris. This was when Paris started to be thought of as the Paris of uh, City of Light. It was when the boulevards became the place where became basically fashion uh, was paraded. This is the, play, the place where uh, the, the sort of uh, music halls, the opera booth and all the rest of it was set up, the cafes, uh, the nightlife. It, it, was, it was, you know, uh, the consumption capital of Europe. Uh, and uh, Louis Bonaparte also had another good idea of how to create uh, as much employment as possible. He mandated a change of uh, all military and court uniforms so that uh, court fashion changed and the result was the seamstresses of Paris were fully employed for about five years, you know, sewing away, you know, to make the new things so that people could go to court and be dressed right for uh, Louis Bonaparte's... Uh. So there were all sorts of moves of this kind. 
uh, which actually did a very good job of creating full employment and at the same time, so it's repression with one hand, full employment on the other, and he got away with it uh, quite well uh, and for, for, uh, for several years. But the problem with debt finance uh, is that at some point or other, somebody kind of asked the question, uh, you know, this is anti-value which we've got working here. Uh, is there any real value being created underneath it? Is, this, is all of this uh, investment which is going to the boulevards actually improving the productivity of uh, value production in the Parisian economy? Is all of this consumption actually cons you know, uh, contributing? Uh, and so what happened was that uh, the answer uh, to that was, well, uh, not so much. And so, but you suddenly get about uh, 15 years later uh, to uh, the problem of um, uh, you know, somebody kind of says this debt finance of the city looks a bit shaky. What are they doing? And this debt finance of all, or the new department stores, what is it all doing? This debt finance, what is it all doing? And so questions were raised, and, uh, and, and confidence suddenly crashed, and there was a financial crisis in 1867-68. Houseman had to leave his position. He was thrown out. Uh, he was often depicted as a thief, and uh, he wasn't actually, but he was depicted as such. Uh, and uh, suddenly uh, the whole kind of question of all of that conspicuous consumption in Second Empire Paris became an object of critique. Uh, particularly from working class movements who now were shaking off some of the police uh, uh, surveillance and all the rest of it. And so we get a lot of social movements at the end of the 1860s. And Louis Bonaparte did what Louis leaders often do in a situation of that kind. He decided the best way to consolidate his power was to have a war against somebody else. So he went to war with Germany. He lost very badly. He ran away to England dressed as Mr. Smith. And... and uh, uh, then the Germans came and they surrounded Paris and then the Parisians decided they were going to take back their own city, rebuild their city in a completely different way uh, outside of all of that bourgeois consumerism and you get the Paris Commune and all that followed from that. But the point about this is that uh, this was, this was a, an urban development project which was precisely about solving the problems of overaccumulation of capital from one period by absorbing that overaccumulating capital and absorbing surpluses of capital and labor in a massive urban project of the sort that, of course, China engaged in. Uh, the second example I always use is what happened in the United States after World War II. You can go through almost the same thing uh, in which you would look at suburbanization, uh, Robert Moses and the reconfiguration of uh, the metropolitan uh, system, uh, the building of the interstate highway system, the integration of the uh, American West and South into the, into the U.S. economy. Um, you know, all of the things that the Chinese have done uh, were, were effectively done in this country. And of course, during that period, the growth rate in this country was very high, around 4 or 5 percent. It was a very successful program of using up the surplus productive capacity and the surplus labor that was available to the economy given uh, the, what had happened during the war effort when surplus productive capacity was gen being generated hand over fist uh, and at the same time when as veterans came back. But of course with veterans returning, uh, if they came back to the Great Depression conditions they would likely have caused a lot of problem 
Uh, everybody recognized that, so there was a healthy kind of repeat of uh, what uh, Louis Bonaparte did by sort of setting up McCarthyism as a way to sort of uh, you know, critique the left and make sure there were no left thinking around, uh, and then uh, launch the suburban thing, which was also not only, of course, a project about uh, building and absorbing surplus capital and labor, it was also a project about changing wants, needs, and desires. And we've talked several times about how wants, needs, and desires are absolutely necessary uh, to be transformed if you're going to actually create uh, a, a, a vibrant uh, economy and that therefore the whole history of the formation of wants, needs, and desires is essential uh, to the maintenance and, and further uh, configuration of value. So here is the situation, if you like, where you have these three examples, uh, say Louis Bonaparte in Paris, uh, suburbanization in the United States and what the Chinese did. In the United States everything went well up until around 1967. You had again about 15 years of very rapid development then things started to go wonky. Uh, a few bankruptcies start to appear and then in 1973 there's a property market crash. In 1975 you have the fiscal crisis of New York City with the bankruptcy of the city which is a dead ringer for what happened to the bankruptcy of Paris in 1867. A very interesting uh, sort of parallels. And so this is, a, this is a familiar story of how capital gets out of things. And I thought it was very fascinating that it came across a report of the San Francisco Federal Reserve, which was talking about the thing that kind of said, you know, one of the things that's about, interesting about U.S. history is how we often get out of crisis by building houses and filling them with things. It was a very interesting kind of summary, and in effect that's what was done in Second Empire Paris. Uh, this is what has been done in China. The only problem is that this, a lot of the Chinese things have not, a lot of the Chinese uh, uh, houses have not been filled with anybody because they're, they're, they're empty. But at the same time as you're building things, you've got to find the consumer power. So actually one of the things that's happened in China is the rapid growth of individual indebtedness. Because people borrow and you have mortgage finance and the mortgage finance uh, is actually become a very crucial part of life uh, in, which, in which people are actually then, uh, you know, given the wherewithal to buy. Uh, and notice how you're managing this. Finance capital is effectively supplying uh, housing at a huge rate. At the same time as finance capital is also lending to people to buy housing. So actually, finance capital is managing both the supply and the demand. Now, this is, a, is of course, a perfect situation to engage in what we call Ponzi activities, uh, in which it really doesn't matter whether the people you know, have any money or anything, you just lend them the money, because the important thing is not to lend it the money to people, but the money goes to people that they can then pay, uh, the developer and all the rest of it. So it's a way of, of validating valorizing things by going out and creating the demand. So you've got that kind of circuit going on, which you can sort of map uh, in, as, 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 as it moves. And this, of course, was true in this country after 2001. In 2001, we had a, a very serious stock market crash. Uh, several trillion dollars were wiped off the value of uh, the stock market in 2001. And there was a lot of surplus capital around. If you read IMF reports at the time, they say the world is awash with surplus liquidity. 
There's too much cash floating around, but nobody knows, nobody knows what to do with it. Uh, so what, what to do with it? The, the stock market has, has tanked. Uh, the dot-com economy has been shown to be sort of a house of cards. Um, you know, what do we do? And Greenspan dropped the interest rate, so everybody kind of said, well, actually, this is a good moment to invest in long-term investments in the built environment, property, you know, and it can be office space or housing or whatever. So we get the property market boom of the, the 2000s, which is, uh, comes out of, very much comes out of uh, the fact of surplus capital and surplus labor which needs to be mopped up, surplus demand, which needs to be mopped up somehow or other. And interest-bearing capital, and that gets me back to one of the things I've been talking about, the flow of interest-bearing capital starts to put pressure on, fierce pressure on the, the, the economic system to go and do something which is going to actually create enough value, if possible, to sort of validate and realize the value uh, of all of that money and all that is, is required. At the same time as this is going on, there is also the growth of the surplus uh, uh, value, which is uh, the surplus, which is, which is washing around, <coughs> looking for new things to do. And since 1970 or so, what we've seen is an enormous increase in the circulation of interest-bearing capital. An enormous increase. Uh, again, the IMF has just produced a, a, a book, a, a study, on, on uh, global uh, indebtedness of all forms uh, apart from the forms within financial institutions. It's, it's all the, the government debt, household debt, corporate debt, all going together. And what you start to see is that this now stands at the level of something like 225% of the global economic output. So total indebtedness globally has come to a huge amount, which means that there is a vast amount of anti-capital looking for ways to make value, anti-value to make value. There's a vast amount there that needs to find an outlet. Now, in 2007, uh, there was a crash, if you like, and for a brief period, the indebtedness just at least stopped its rise. But one of the things that's happened since 2007 is by 2009, it was announced that we are out of the crisis. And being out of the crisis means that actually the indebtedness is growing again, because that was basically the figure. The stock market is doing okay. When the stock market, you know, it doesn't matter about employment, doesn't matter how people are feeling, doesn't matter. That doesn't matter at all. Uh, the economic measure is is uh, of this sort. And there, there's a diagram here which I thought I brought with me, but probably haven't. Um, the graph, yeah, you, you won't be able to see it very well, but this is this comes from this is this is it. This is this is uh, 1970, where you can see the debt is around zero, and then it sort of does a typical exponential curve. There's a blip here, 2007, 2008, then it resumes. So it, 
the, the total debt then has been accelerating in this, in this particular way since, since then. Now, this was something that was not, of course, Marx was not concerned with this because this was not going on in Marx's times. What has been happening, and I think this is one of the things where we need to go beyond uh, you know what Marx managed, where Marx managed to get in Volume Three of Capital by analyzing this kind of stuff to talk about the, the rising uh, indebtedness, uh, which is which is characteristic of the current phase of capital accumulation, and this is true, uh, as I mentioned, uh, of, of China as well as true of uh, the United States. In fact, the United States is one of the few countries that started to reduce its, its you know, total private and, and corporate debt somewhat after 2007. Uh, China, as I've suggested, uh, it all went, it leapt upwards. Uh, and many other parts of the world, you can look at uh, Turkey and, and uh, uh, many parts of Latin America. So. This is, if you like, the situation, and it is, uh, it seems to me, uh, pretty evident that this is an untenable situation. It's an untenable situation, and you know, in the same way that uh, it is connected to the enormous increase in, in the consumption of cement, you kind of think to yourself, what is, the, what, is, what is going to happen if this graph keeps on going in this direction? How much cement will we have to spread around in various parts of the world uh, to catch up with uh, all of this if we're going to have the kind of solution uh, to the problems of uh, surplus uh, productive capacity? And there are signs uh, of ways in which this surplus productive capacity is in fact being deployed. I mentioned uh, the, the case of steel. China consumed uh, over half of the world's uh, steel. But since 2013, uh, there have been some very, very uh, difficult moments in the Chinese development process. Up until then, it went fairly smoothly, very fast. Uh, and, and, but 2013, uh, people started to ask the same sorts of questions as they asked of Hausmann in, in 1867 and of uh, Moses in uh, uh, 1967. And, and, and uh, that, that uh, so, sort of question has led to a great deal of volatility uh, in China's relation to the rest of the world, so that China has actually uh, decreased its demand for raw materials, has decreased somewhat its uh, activity and its investments in, in urbanization. And, and uh, the result of that is that it makes fewer demands on, uh, for raw materials from various parts of the world. And the result is that countries like Chile and Brazil and Australia have been filling the draft economically. So while they didn't feel bad, very badly in uh, 2007, 2008 in the last couple of years, They've not been doing very well. In fact, much, much of Latin America that had reoriented itself very much to the China trade is now finding itself in serious economic, uh, economic difficulties. Uh, but China itself has a vast overcapacity uh, in uh, iron and steel production, in steel production. And the question is, how is that steel? What's going to happen? And uh, so the Chinese have uh, had a policy of trying to close down steel mills. 
Well, as uh, you know, in, in this country, it's not easy to close down a steel mill. And in fact, the social and economic and political consequences of trying to close down steel mills but in China have been, uh, again, uh, rather fraught. And there's been a lot of struggle. So they haven't, in fact, they were talking about cutting, uh, uh, closing down half of their production capacity in steel because that's probably what the level of overcapacity is. But uh, they can't do it. They've only managed to you know, reduce steel uh, output by about 10% internally. So what do they do? Well, this then gets to one other aspect that we talked about before, which is the idea I like to use of the spatial fix. That is, uh, if you've got surplus productive capacity, uh, you look to export it. Uh, and when the British had uh, surplus productive capacity of this sort in the 19th century, uh, they, uh, you know, they sent the steel and they sent the, the, the railroad engines and things like that to Argentina. And they built the railroads in Argentina. Uh, and, uh, of course, the Argentinians didn't have money to pay for it, so they lent the money to Argentina to buy it. So Britain lent money to Argentina so Argentina could consume British steel and rolling stock. That was a very nice kind of way, way to go. And, of course, Argentina, over the time, had to pay for it. Had to pay for it out of its agricultural exports, out of its productive activity. And the thesis was that the, by, the railroads would improve productivity in Argentina. And by improving productivity in Argentina, the benefits that came from that improved productivity would then pay off. Uh, so the, the, this is the way in which, which it worked. And in an Argentinian case, to some degree, that worked. It worked quite well. Uh, because the railroads went into the agricultural areas of Argentina and made it much easier to take the wheat to the Buenos Aires and, the, you know, and when refrigeration came in, the, 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 the sort of uh, the meat as well, so you could take, take all of the raw materials to the port uh, much more easily, and this improved the productivity. So China is doing the same thing. China is lending money to all kinds of people all around the world so that they engage in projects which use Chinese steel. So they're building railroads all over East Africa. Not only do they use Chinese steel, but they also take Chinese labor. Uh, they've also got this uh, one belt, one road uh, project, which is uh, in effect to join Shanghai to Istanbul by one connected it's a revival of the Silk Road, or one version of the Silk Road, right through Central Asia, through Tehran, uh, and, and, and therefore link. The point about this is the speed with which you can get people, uh, you can get commodities to move around. And this speed thing is very important. Sometimes people think it's cost, but it's not. It's often speed. Uh, for instance, the cost of ocean transport uh, in the world is probably about one, you know, <coughs> let's say one one eighth. Uh, uh, sorry, the cost of you know about one eighth that of, of of transporting things by air. But the point about transporting things by air is you can be there, you know, twelve hours, pretty much anywhere. Whereas if you come by boat, it takes you eight days or ten days. <coughs> And the speed becomes very, very significant. And the reliability becomes very, very significant. So if you have just-in-time production systems in Detroit and you want to get the component parts from Brazil to, to Detroit, 
you use air transport. And it's much more expensive than going by but it's the speed that's important. And the Chinese have already figured out that you, you, could, you could get from Shanghai uh, to Istanbul uh, by this high-speed network they're setting up in four days, uh, as opposed to 14 or 20 days, which would take if you went round through the Suez Canal and all this came in, came in, came in that way. So, so the speed thing becomes very, very important. And they've, they've now got this project then to actually integrate, not simply the whole of China, but to integrate uh, the whole of uh, Asia, Europe, uh, continent by uh, new transport networks, do in other words, uh, to the whole of Asia and Europe what they have been doing internally. Internally, they also have plans. Uh, and I was really amazed to read an account in the Financial Times about this time last year, which talked about uh, the plan for one single city in China that would house 140 million people. Now, 140 million people is about the same as the total population of Britain and France, and you put them all in one city. God knows if they're all French and British, what a terrible time it would be. But <laughs> this, this, this thing, uh, but it, it centered on Beijing. And in effect, it's a little bit like what the Dutch did with Randstad, which is to actually integrate a lot of urban areas into one communicative structure. And they're going to do, this, do this, one around Beijing, one Shanghai, Nanjing, that whole devil, and one in Guangzhou. So you're going to have three megalopolises, if you want to call them that, which are going to be linked together with high-speed networks of, you know, of all sorts, so that you can get from one end of the megalopolis to the other in 60 minutes. And this is the idea. So again, you can imagine how much uh, steel and cement that is going to take. And so this is again is a way of, of dealing with it. So they've got, they've got an internal pro uh, a further internal project to absorb the steel. They've got an external one uh, in Latin America. They're, they're also building uh, transcontinental uh, high, uh, highway rail links over the Andes. They've already got a, a contract with Peru to go over the Andes down into the Amazon on the other side. So that, again, instead of sailing all the way through the Panama Canal or right the way down the south, you just come straight, go straight into the port in Peru and then over the mountains and down, and you're in Sao Paulo in, a, in, in you know, uh, eight hours or ten hours or something like that. So uh, they have these, these, these projects uh, to, to integrate. They want to build another version of the Panama Canal through Nicaragua. Well, you want to think they'd do it? Nicaragua's not alone. No, they've got it. They, they, they have it already organized. Uh, the only thing problem they've got right now is the financing. So this is a this is a so so this is a spatial fix. But notice what this does. What this does is to create uh, a, a complete reconfiguration of the global transport structures. Uh, complete reconfiguration, uh, if it comes to be, and it's not. And, and the reason for it is not that it's going to make the world a better place or anything of that kind. It's that we have surplus capital and we need to find a way to use it. And we want to find a way to use it profitably. 
And of course the hope would be that this would somehow or other contribute to rising productivity on the global level. Because the point of any of these fixed capital investments at the end of the day is that they increase productivity. And there's no question that in this country, for example, the interstate highway system contrib contributed to the productivity of the American economy in very, very strong ways. I think the same would be said <clears throat> of some of the investments in infrastructure in China. Others, not. And again, we have to be careful here to kind of imagine that all of this is actually productive consumption, which is really productive, as opposed to just consumption. But the point about this is also that you don't know until five or six years later whether or not it has contributed to rising productivity or not. But it then goes back, however, to the foundational question which we began with, which is why is it that we are therefore absolutely concerned to follow on this compound growth curve of the sort that is now emerging in this debt finance. And the reason it's emerging in debt finance is, is quite simple. That compound growth, if it is actually talked about in use value terms, has clear limits. I mean, compound growth in the use of building materials, if you go from Second Empire Paris, uh, the suburbanization of the United States, to what China has done, and then you imagine you're on a, 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 an exponential growth curve, imagine how much you'll have to consume in the way of building materials in, in 30 years' time if we do another bout of this sort of thing. It's absolutely unthinkable in terms of use values. The only form of capital that can increase without limit is the money form. And of course credit is denominated in the money form. And so here we have the possibility of capital which is no longer actually concerned to produce anything, but which actually is taking the money form and is expanding the money form at a compound rate, which of course when you think of it immediately, you immediately think, well, this is, this is going to be like inflation. It's going to be like inflation on steroids. But right now, of course, all sorts of measures are being taken to make sure that it does not produce inflation. But we are at this cusp where it's not hard to imagine that things can switch around very fast. And I think it is extremely interesting that since Trump got elected, you look at what's happened in bond markets and you look at what's happened at interest rates and you look at what inflation expectations are, if you look at all those kinds of things. And what is he saying? He's saying he's going to create full employment like Louis Bonaparte. How's he going to do it? He's going to have an investment in infrastructures, right? How, how, is it going to, how is that investment in infrastructures going to be funded? Well, it's going to have to be debt financed. Good luck with getting Congress to do that, unless, of course, the Democrats, you know, vote. You know, I sometimes fantasize that Trump will actually convert to Democratic uh, halfway in two years' time, because the only people who support him in Congress on all this infrastructure expenditure may be the Democrats. But this is a kind of a, 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 a fantasy situation. But nevertheless, it's where the real economy is headed. And there are interesting sidebars to this. Uh, for example, 
getting hold of the money question is one of the big technical issues of the time. And most of the world's central banks are essentially thinking now that they want to move towards a cashless economy. A cashless economy because in a cashless economy you know where the money is. And therefore they're going to try to use the blockchain technology to try to create a cashless world. And they're already experimenting with this in Sweden. They're already beginning to do this. And we see all kinds of strange things going on in the monetary sphere. Because the thing about cash is that it's not easy to survey where it is. And this stuff going on in India right now, which is trying to find out where, who's got all of the, you know, who's got the money, where it is, you know, is a way of trying to attack that. But the other way was to abolish notes altogether, cash altogether. You would just use your phone app, and you go around and you press it, and you press it, and that's it. And you develop, and everybody would have a phone app, and you would just, you know, and you'd have a chip inside your, your, your phone, which would actually be your, your bank account. And you wouldn't even need a bank. You wouldn't need. Because you'd have a bank, in a sense you'd be your own banker, but the thing is, you'd be using a technology which could be surveyed and understood. And, and you couldn't money launder and all kinds of things like that. All right. So there are many things of this kind going on, but it also then associates with something else, which is the dynamics which currently exist in terms of the realization of values. And we've come across this uh, two or three times before, which is about the way in which wants, needs and desires of populations are absolutely critical for the way in which value is realized. Without the radical transformation of wants, needs and desires, there can be no realization of value. And that therefore, the question of realization becomes more and more significant. Now, realization, as I suggested in the suburbanization case, in the United States is about also the creation of a, a lifestyle. And if you look at all the ways in which the suburban lifestyle was promoted in this country in the 1950s, 1960s, every television sitcom was about suburban lifestyle and, you know, there was a kind of all sorts of ways in which the lifestyle questions were, 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 were promoted, including, of course, the American dream which is the individual home, home ownership. So these lifestyle questions become significant, and I've already mentioned that in Second Empire Paris, part of the political program was not simply about employing capital and labor, it was also about manufacturing a new lifestyle, a new configuration of the way in which value is going to be realized. And that this then comes very much into the picture in terms of the kinds of things where wants, needs, and desires are created 
to which we have to conform. Now, here we get what I think to me is the nexus of very important, which is the relationship between the rising debt economy, which is foreclosing on futures, forecloses on what will happen because of the debt that has to be redeemed. At the same time as that connects with that the redemption of that debt depends upon the creation of a certain kind of lifestyle. A lifestyle which is conducive to people actually spending the money and using their resources to conform to a particular lifestyle which is adequate to the redemption of the debt. So if you want a dystopian version of where we might be headed, it would be something like this. That the volumes of debt are very much associated with social control. That the social control is actually very tightly bound to the redemption of debt. And that in that sense, our future is already foreclosed upon. It's already written what it is we must do. Now, individuals, we may not want to do it, but this is the world in which we have to live and to which we are forced to adapt. And if you look at former incidents of this kind, and I take the suburbanization of the United States to be a very good example, it wasn't as if everybody chose that. It was that if people wanted a decent house and a decent living environment, that was the only option available to them. So the suburban lifestyle was something which was actually almost mandated in certain ways. And I always think it's fascinating that at the same time as that suburban lifestyle ran into economic difficulties, it also ran into certain social difficulties. Because the generation of 68 hated the suburbs. And so you get an anti-suburban movement. First wave feminists describe the suburb as their great enemy. That place with no name. And, and the 68 generation was very much, I think, looking for something radically different from the kind of lifestyle that had been imposed in the 1950s and 1960s in this, in this country. So these shifts, these economic and historical shifts, are some of the ways in which our economy has been transformed over the last 30, 40 years. And I think it's, to me it's very important to look at this and to go back and look at that visualization of the circulation of capital. And to say, look, that visualization allows us to understand some of the ways in which the valorization of capital connects to the realization, connects to distribution. When we do some deeper analysis of what's going on in the field of distribution, and why distribution elements have become more and more critically important, then it shifts our attention away from the kinds of findings of Volume 1 of Capital, which are still terribly important and, and absolutely critical, but asks us 
very much to try to complete the analysis of the volume three of Capital. And it's the analysis particularly of the role of financial interest institutions and the role of interest-bearing capital in actually forcing not only the accumulation process at this time, but the accumulation process into the future. And it is that sense that we have a future which is already foreclosed, which seems to me to be one of the crucial things uh, that actually uh, colors <clears throat> the way in which we experience the contemporary world. It produces conditions of what I would refer to as alienation. It produces conditions of helplessness before the power of that interest-bearing capital. It does not easily lend itself to some sort of macro transformation in which suddenly the debt becomes controlled by, I don't know, a committee of good citizens. That, that can't happen. There has to be some way of subversion, some tactics of subversion of that whole system. Otherwise, we are, in fact, on this mad path. And it's precisely those kind of comments that Marx makes in the Grundrisse that kind of says, you know, we're forcing the world to a point of impossible and improbable consumerism. We're forcing this world to in impossible levels of indebtedness that cannot possibly be paid off. In other words, when you look at this graph of the indebtedness of the global economy, which is 225% of total output of, of, of the world right now, then you kind of say to yourself, we're not, being, we're not too far away from where Greece has been. The only point about Greece is that they had a troika sitting on them and saying, okay, you've got to get rid of this somehow. But there's no global troika. We just have to wait until it all explodes. And the point, again, about looking back at these moments of explosion, like 2007, 2008, 1867 in Paris, 1967 to 75 in New York City. The point about looking at these is to kind of say, well, these are precursors of the kind of explosion that we're likely to see. And that explosion next time around will be harder to live with, in part because the only way in which the last explosion could be cured was by spreading all that cement around. And that is not sufficient, it seems to me, to lead us into what the Ecuadorians and the Bolivians like to call the good life, buen vivir. That is not a basis for buen vivir. In fact, even on the investment side, we are creating cities, for example, in the Chinese case, we are creating cities which are not necessarily good places to live in, but they're good places to invest in. The Chinese mania for buying 
these properties has nothing to do with finding a good place to live. It has everything to do with actually buying an asset which has a value, which maybe will last. And because it lasts, it is therefore something which is extremely valuable to people. Now the Chinese, as I've suggested, live in their own value regime. But there are always porosities and leaks, and there's a lot of money coming, coming out of China recently. Private money. What's it going into? High-end buying up housing in New York City, and San Francisco, and Vancouver. And actually before that, when the Irish were doing very well, the Irish were doing the same thing. Buying condos in New York City. Because it's a good thing to invest in. So what's happening to property prices? Property prices surging upwards. And San Francisco is ludicrous right now, even compared to New York, London, the rest of it. So we're building cities for people to invest in, not cities for people to live in. And actually, every place I go, that's what I see. I've seen it in Ramallah. I've seen it in yeah, Turkey. I've seen it in Santiago, in Chile. I've seen it everywhere. You see it, of course, in New York. Because we then end up with building cities which are great for people to invest in at a time when actually there's a crisis of affordable housing. And a lack of affordable housing. There's a global crisis of affordable housing for the mass of the population. But a massive amount of cement is being poured, a massive amount of stuff is being done which is not solving or addressing that problem of affordable housing whatsoever. It's creating housing and you know, property units for people to invest in. Now, go back to the gift economy and how insane it looked. This looks insane to me. This is the madness of current economic reason. This is the madness of current economic thinking. It's the madness of a contemporary economic system which has been oriented in a certain way and which the economists cannot grasp with because they are so fetishistically attached to the idea of harmonious equilibrium growth that they cannot see the contradictory character of capital and they cannot see the madness of the economic reason which they promulgate. And this is why I think going back to Marx and looking at how Marx set it up is actually very valuable. Because you see an alternative way of putting it all together and you see a way of you know, recognizing so much of it is incomplete, recognizing that it's not always correct, recognizing that there are lots of things that need to be done with it, but at least using it as a basis to write a critical analysis of exactly what is going on in the, in the world. What, how is it that daily life is being ruled and in many respects ruined by the madness of money? And in fact Keynes had a wonderful kind of comment I wish I brought it along to read it to you. He basically kind of says you know, my hope is one day that the money system 
will not exactly be reformed, but will be reorganized in a situation of massive surpluses, but the money system will be reorganized in such a way that we will leave aside the pathological aspects which drive money onwards to its uses and those pathological uses will be frowned upon morally by the rest of the population such that anybody who is actually caught up with the greed of money will be committed to a psychiatric institution <coughs> as being a psychopath and that way we will be able to relieve ourselves and it's very interesting what Cain said about this we will relieve ourselves of those aspects of the economy that are truly obnoxious and those aspects of the economy which we truly needed to get the economy to this point because we need to go beyond and try to create an alternative world but it is going to be a world that has to confront the madness of money and the madness of value creation in eternity at a compounding rate of growth. And those are the kinds of ideas that it seems to me, critical ideas that come out of uh, a, a thorough reading and uh, analysis uh, of what it was that Marx was trying to communicate in Capital. So let me stop here and then we can <coughs> throw it open to any kind of comments or just points you want to make, clarification or, or issues. <laughs>